thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And all God's people said, Amen. One of the more interesting holidays, if that's the right word, took place this week, a couple days ago. How many of you got pranked this week? Do we, any of your family, okay, a couple of you, okay. April Fool's Day. I, I remember thinking this week, who came up with that idea? So I did a little digging to figure out where did this come from? And uh, there is some division among the experts on the matter, but there appears to be somewhat of a consensus that April Fool's dates back to around 1582 when France officially switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar uh, as the Council of Trent had asked them to in 1563. And in the Julian calendar, the one that got left behind, New Year's was the spring equinox around April 1st. And they switched to the new calendar where it was January 1st. And the result was uh, you had this country in which there was a significant crowd either because they hadn't heard or because they just were like, I'm not doing that, who when April 1st rolled around, were partying out in the streets. It's New Year. It's time to celebrate. We made it to the end of the year. And the rest of the country said, you bunch of April fools. It's the middle of the work year. Get back to work. It's not time to party yet. That happens at the end of the year, which is now the end of December. And we've been pranking each other ever since for some reason. It's a funny picture that I think actually illustrates well some of what Paul is calling the Corinthians out for this morning in our passage. Uh, there in France, something had changed, something significant that altered the course of history and the way that they were to understand the rhythm and flow of their lives. And there were some people who, through ignorance or pride, just refused to accept or respond accordingly. And so they were out acting like it was time to rest, time to celebrate, time to party, when it wasn't. It was time to work. It was time to be busy. It was not the holidays yet. And Paul is calling the Corinthians out for getting ahead of themselves, for acting like it's the spiritual new year, like our rest has come, our work is done. It's time to, to reign and to rule and, and to enjoy all of the ultimate blessings of being in Christ. And Paul is saying, no, it's not. You don't understand where you're fitting into the present purposes of God. Get back to work. Understand where you're fitting into the story. And so if you have your copy of God's word, let's read this together as we pick up with Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our text this morning will be verses 8 to 13, but we'll pick up in verse 7. As you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. As always, if that's a hardship, don't feel bad to stay seated. But for those who are able, we'll begin in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which says this. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then our text for this morning, beginning in verse 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels 
and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You may be seated. As we jump back into 1 Corinthians after our our Go Sunday last week, it was such a joy to hear from our global outreach partners last week. I'm still not sure if I'm allowed to say their, their name on a recording or not. But what a joy that was to hear about the work that's going on in that part of the world. But it's been a couple weeks since we were in 1 Corinthians, so let's catch up. If you recall, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing sin in the church, a church that has a big sanctification problem. And the immediate issue that Paul wants to deal with is the divisions that are happening in the church as they form factions. Paul's confronting not only the divisions on the surface, but what's behind those divisions, which is an infatuation with worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom has led to worldly evaluations, has led to worldly divisions within the church. And in contrast, Paul lays out for them a theology of the cross, the foolishness of the gospel message that cannot be made cool in the eyes of the world, that forces you into a decision, follow Christ or try to be cool according to worldly categories. You can't have both. And so to elevate mere men such as Apollos or Paul or Peter uh, to these faction leaders in their minds is just plain silly and just plain sinful because it's undermining what God is doing in the whole church to whom all of those men have been given as gifts for the benefit of all. And that brings us to chapter 4. Paul has continuing has been continuing to deal with the issue of pride in the Corinthians. And he begins by explaining that all these men that they're trying to elevate are nothing more than servants and stewards of God. They don't hold the position of glory that they think. They are, they are servants of all. And to make them superstars in the church when they're just these stewards is, is foolish. And the apostles themselves don't really care what the Corinthians think about them. Because they are looking to God and God only for their vindication as faithful servants. And so bottom line in verse 6, Paul says, Stop adding worldly categories to the biblical categories so that you will stop comparing yourselves to each other and getting yourselves into so much trouble. Paul then begins in verse 7 what I like to call the watch out waltz. The watch out waltz. It's a series of questions in verse 7. Sarcastic statements in verse 8, observations in verse 9, and more sarcastic statements in verse 10 that all come in groups of three. And so it's a, it's a waltz, the purpose of which is to step on each other's toes. That's the goal. And so that's what we'll be beginning with this morning is the watch out waltz. And then we'll end with a few verses where Paul lays that aside and just shares from the heart some of his personal testimony about what real life as an apostle actually looks like and is motivated by and should be characterized by in response to a fallen world. So that's where we're going to be going this morning. And a couple things to keep in mind as we dive in. Yes, there's a lot of corrective and even confrontational language in this section. Let's remind ourselves that's not a bad thing. That's a form of grace. 
whenever truth comes in the form of exhortation to warn us of error, that is grace, right? It is grace to say, turn around, you're going to run off a cliff. Well, aren't you being ornery? Right? It's grace to say there is danger if you continue on your present course. And so we should receive it as such. And secondly, let's make sure that we read this passage with the heart that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is intended. Paul here is definitely using his dad voice. Have you guys all heard a dad voice? I was shocked to discover that as soon as I became a dad, I got one. It's like, I have a dad voice now, and it sounds like my dad's dad voice. That's um, uncanny. Our culture hates a dad voice. Right? They hate the voice of fatherly authority. They want something that's more lovably goofy or ignorably safe, kind of like a, a real sweet butler. Right? That's, that's the kind of dad voice our culture wants. But Paul is going to be strong here with the Corinthians. And by extension, our Heavenly Father, through inspired Scripture, is being strong with us, but not the kind of strong that sometimes earthly fathers sinfully fall into. And so to understand his heart, I'm going to cheat ahead just a little bit to our passage for next week so that we read this passage properly. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 15, Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And then in verse 15, he says, because I'm your spiritual father. Paul's goal is admonishment, not shame. He is impressing upon them the guilt of their actions. He's exposing the ridiculousness of their thinking. He's making it painfully clear what correct thinking and actions should have looked like. But that is the goal, to urge them with all sincerity to turn from a path that will lead to their destruction and return them to the path of obedience and blessing. And to do that with truth even if it's truth laden with sarcasm, to do that with truth, not by trying to embarrass them or press the force of his power upon them to get the results he wants. And that's a good lesson for those of us that our fathers are in a position of leadership. It is gracious to expose where there is dangerous error, but not to try to effect good change through the force of shame and embarrassment or through the desire to simply impress power upon another. Secondly, notice that Paul's motivation is not anger and annoyance with the Corinthians, but fatherly love. He calls them his children, and not just his children, but his beloved children, and addresses them as those he takes responsibility for, and as we just saw, understands himself to be a God-given gift to for their good. So that's, that's the backdrop to set up our, our passage this morning. And let's get that running start at it in verse 7, where, where we heard last time in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul asked these three questions. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And here we see the way in which pride causes us to invert the gratitude we should have God for the grace that he has shown us. It it causes us to start comparing ourselves to each other and to coming up with this idea that I'm better or you're better or he's better or she's better. And Paul says, which one of you can call yourselves better when none of you have contributed anything good to anything? Everything anybody has is a gift. That's what it means to be a creature, not a creator. I'm smarter than he is. With whose brain? I'm faster than they are. With whose legs? I have more spiritual discernment. From which Holy Spirit? 
right? Everything we have is a gift and a gracious one. And therefore, we can boast when God does God things through us, but we can never boast as if it was not because we had received it from his hand. So that's the series of questions that sets up the argument for the remainder of this chapter. And as been explained a couple of weeks ago, Paul is confronting the pride of the Corinthians here, their overinflated view of themselves and of where they're fitting at in history. And so that piercing set of questions, I said, that reveals how pride inverts our gratitude leads into more piercing observation that continues to show the way in which pride is constantly inverting our perception of reality. And that's what pride does, doesn't it? Most of us have had at least one experience in life where we were very convinced that reality worked a certain way in which we featured quite positively, only to be confronted with a circumstance or an incident that put a mirror in our face we could not ignore. And we realize I've been standing on my head. I've been viewing this upside down. And that's what Paul is doing this morning. He's putting this mirror up in front of the Corinthians in a way they cannot ignore and saying, see your folly now before it is too late. So let's continue in verses 8 and 9 and look at on your outlines this morning. This is your first point, how pride inverts our present purpose. Our present purpose. Look at verse 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. And so this is Paul's next grouping of three in the watch out waltz. And if you're wondering, yes, Paul is being sarcastic. And because this is inspired scripture, that means that, yes, sometimes God is sarcastic with us. There is a sanctified form of this that is not mean-spirited and sinful, but is incredibly effective at exposing things for what they really are. And what is Paul exposing here? He's exposing the Corinthians' grossly inflated view of themselves and what their present purpose was in God's program. And he begins by saying this, you are already filled. Now, when we hear the word filled in the church, we're usually thinking filled by the Holy Spirit. And the believers are indeed indwelt by the Holy Spirit here in Corinth. Paul's already affirmed that. But he uses a different word here. He's not talking about being filled with the Spirit. He says, you guys have already eaten as much as you can eat and to the point where you feel like you can't eat anymore. He's saying, you act like you're all stuffed and happy. That's the word he's talking about here. As though they had already reached satisfaction and rest in their spiritual lives. They remind me a little bit of, of a fellow. You probably never met somebody like this, but these people exist that says, I'm going to learn a new skill. I'm going to become a real skilled carpenter. And so they, you know, I'm going to need some tools. I'm going to need some tools to do this. So they go down to Lowe's and they, or Home Depot and they buy all these really expensive, beautiful tools and they haul them home and they set them up in their garage and then, like, that scratched the itch. Like, I don't need to actually learn how to use any of them or develop any skill or mastery in becoming an actual carpenter. Like, I've arrived. Have you seen my tools? Right? You ever heard of somebody like this? Right? A lot of good tools die sad, lonely lives that way. And a lot of God's good gifts meet the same fate. We are so satisfied with our justification, being declared righteous by God at the point of our salvation, of our faith by grace in the work of Christ. And we're so ignorant of the condition and importance of our sanctification our need to progressively grow in becoming more like Jesus Christ in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we just kick back from this banquet table that God has spread before us after a sip of water, and we say, oh man, I am quite stuffed. I couldn't handle another bite. 
It's sad. Because the Corinthians, they would have picked up on this irony right away because Paul had just called them a bunch of babies. Do you remember? Back in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, this is your true state. I want to give you rich food, but I can't because you can only handle milk. But they've been acting like they're gorging on rich food until they just put, couldn't possibly eat one more bite. They thought they should be spending their time sitting around enjoying just how satisfied they were when that is not God's purpose for them, nor is that the actual reality they're living in. They should have realized their extreme spiritual immaturity and devoted themselves to the word, to the word and to the pursuit of holiness. But unfortunately, not only did they think their spiritual tummies were full, they also thought their spiritual wallets were full. He goes on next to say, you've already become rich. Paul has indeed already thanked God back in chapter 1 for the Corinthians being enriched in Christ to the end that they had no lack of any spiritual gift. But instead of learning how to employ those gifts for spiritual profit, the Corinthians acted like the gifts themselves were fat stacks of spiritual cash to be used for their own conceited desires. They took God's gifts not as tools for service, but as toys for selfishness. God's purpose was for the Corinthians to employ their gifts for the building up of the church body in love, as Paul would go on to teach the Ephesians. But instead in Corinth, they were busy building themselves up, being impressed with themselves, And their gifts that were supposed to be used for the unity and health of the body were becoming sources of the very division and factions of the body. They were impoverished, but they thought they were rich. They were starving, but they thought they were full. And Paul goes on to add to that that they're in the middle of a spiritual battlefield and acting like the war is already over. Continue on with me. You have become kings without us. Or I think better rendered, you have begun to reign without us. And indeed, I wish that you had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Paul is trying to point here a light on the fact that you think you're at the end of the story, but you're in the middle of the story. It is part of the great hope of Christians that we will rule and reign one day. Notice the problem of the Corinthians is not wanting to rule and reign. Because Paul's like, I want to join you, right? I want to rule and reign with you. That's part of the story. We shall finally one day, as God intended from the moment he first put Adam and Eve in the garden, we shall one day rule over this world and steward it as an act of humble dominion underneath the kingship of Jesus Christ. And that'll be a glorious day. But that day is not this day. And the Corinthians are acting like they could have Christ and his gifts, but not have to ever employ them in a spiritual battle between light and darkness. They thought they could enjoy the blessings of Christ and the kudos of the world all at the same time. They thought their purpose was to enjoy lounging in comfort and power. Why can't we Christians be the talk of the town? Why can't we have all the attention on us? And Paul says, well, funny you should bring that topic up. Because as a matter of fact, the world is watching and the world is interested, but not in the way that you think. And so he steps back and brings their elevated view of themselves crashing to the ground in verse 9. Look with me, verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. 
because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. What a jarring contrast. Paul says, if you want to use this royal metaphor language, okay, let's use a royal metaphor language. And here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to picture a royal scene, and then you've been elevating all of these apostles to this superstar status. Let's figure out where your superstars actually fit into the middle of a royal metaphor. And he conjures up the language of what was called the triumph. When in the ancient world, a king or general would come through and conquer a nation, they would come home and throw a big old parade. And the king and his generals, or the general would be in the front together with his nobles and officials and the people that had been leaders in the battle. And they would be on their big horses looking tough and cool. And they'd ride at the beginning. Behind them would come their soldiers all polished up and also looking big and tough and cool. And then behind them would come the servants pulling these big carts of loot. You know, look how much stuff we stole. It's so cool. And then at the very, very end, you would hear the clinking of chains. And row after row after row of prisoners would be being dragged behind the loot carts. Often the king that had been conquered, his noblemen, dignitaries, and others of significance that had been captured in battle and then had been forced to march all the way back to the seat of power of their captors to be paraded in this big triumph, as that parade was called, And everybody knew if you were part of that group of prisoners, you had been condemned to die. Every single one of them would be executed. And Paul says, let's find our superheroes. There's the big triumph you're imagining. Are you the king or the general? No. How how about one of the soldiers or the apostles and you guys mixed in there with the soldiers somewhere? No. Well, are you at least like pulling the loot carts? No. What age are you living in, Corinthians? Which kingdom are you currently existing in, Corinthians? When this world throws a parade, where do you think you feature? Last of all, with the apostles, as men condemned to die. Oof. That's the nature of this exhibition. He goes on then to give the scope of this exhibition. This exhibition will be a spectacle to the whole world. That spectacle of the triumph took place at the the end of the parade in a coliseum or theater. You see, the, the death of these prisoners was not simply a judicial execution. It was meant to be entertainment for the masses. And so all of these prisoners, haggard and weary from the that being dragged all the way from their home country, they'd be thrown into the arena with wild beasts and gladiators to be slaughtered as a spectacle for the entertainment of the masses. And Paul says, that's what we are. We're a spectacle on display for the whole world to see. Paul had a great hope in the coming rule of Christ. It's throughout all of his writings but he had no illusions about where he stood in the estimation of this world. To follow Christ in this world is to always risk death. And if it was true for Paul, then the Corinthians needed to update their expectations in a hurry. The spiritual battle going on in this world is not a game, and real blood gets spilled. Real blood is getting spilled today around the world. And speaking of that spiritual battle... Speaking of that spectacle, notice that Paul points out it is not just a human audience that is watching. Did you catch that? 
the apostles are being displayed as a spectacle before the whole world of not only human eyes, but did you see that? Angelic audiences as well. Paul points out that his stand in the arena of suffering was not only for the good and for the lessons of those who would see here on earth, but God is just demonstrating the greatness of Jesus to all of his creation. The greatness of Jesus to a lost world and to his people, but also to the angelic realm as well. And you see this interplay throughout Scripture. Sometimes it shows up in places like Job, where part of the suffering of Job was to teach Satan a lesson about the nature of true worship and obedience and that it's not connected to earthly blessings and goods. It might also look like the fact that the entire story of salvation is a mystery to the angels. They don't understand grace the way that we do because that's not been offered to them. There is no redemption story for angels. And so they, as Peter would write, they look with fascination on the gospel and on this idea of redemption. And they want to understand how does this work? I think sometimes we think, the angels have all the answers, right? I mean, they live in the same zip code as God. Like, they got to know everything. And yet we, as creatures made in his image who have been given the gift of redemption in Jesus Christ, there are things that we know and experience about the character of God that, that the angels will forever simply be marveling at. And God is showing off sides of himself to his angels in us that they will never directly experience. How easy does our pride get in the way of God's purposes and what he is trying to do in and through us? Because this is the purpose of God for us at the present time, to be able to bear the same path of suffering and the same spectacle as our Savior did when he was here. It's not to lounge about feeling very happy and lazy about ourselves. How easily does pride do the work of the devil himself in taking us out of the spiritual battle altogether without Satan even having to contend with the blood-bought, spirit-empowered, spiritually gifted church of God that Jesus promised would eventually knock down the very gates of hell? A couple lessons for us. The humble remain spiritually hungry. The humble remain spiritually hungry. Notice how Paul chastises them for saying, I've had enough. I'm full. I don't need any more. And Paul says, there's so much more that you need. You're infants. You're starving. Eat. And as Christians, a sign of pride in our lives and something to be wary of is the sense that I've learned enough. I know enough. I've grown enough. I've arrived. I'm satisfied. I feel full. If we feel full, that is a symptom of a disease that is masking starvation. We should always be hungry. And there's a lot of opportunities to develop that in our own personal study in God's Word, in our adult classes, in things like our life groups, our NICS conferences. There's a lot of opportunities to go and, and feast and you don't have to do everything. And, but what are you doing to feed and to grow? Because the, the humble in Christ will enter heaven still hungry for more. And secondly, the humble remain steadfastly hopeful. Paul never forgot 
the end of the story. He knew Christ was coming. He knew glory was coming. And he longed for that day to come. But he understood that his purpose today is not to pretend the war is over, but to remain steadfast in that hope, in the midst of suffering, in the reality of a world in which we are persecuted, in which we are hated, and to do that until the day of glory comes. And the humble submit to that willingly, recognizing it's supposed to be hard, but it will be worth it, and so I will persevere. And by God's grace, our church will continue to grow in its appetite for truth and its humble awareness of how much we all still have to learn and grow as followers of Christ, as a spectacle before the world. Who knows what role God will providentially assign us in the years to come? But let us be determined that by the grace of God, we will set an example before the watching eyes of heaven and earth of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we must do that with humility for whoever thinks he stands ought to take heed lest he fall, as Paul will warn the Corinthians later in chapter 10. And so pride inverts our understanding of the present purposes of God for us, but it also threatens to always invert our present condition, how we understand ourselves in the midst of our purposes. And look with me at pride inverting our present condition in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And so the watch out waltz continues our next triplet here. Paul's looking backwards now to the discussion we've already had in chapters 1 and 3, contrasting the foolishness, weakness, and dishonor of the world with the foolishness, weakness, and dishonor of God. And so set your irony phasers to kill. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. The Corinthians had criticized Paul because you just don't seem very smart. You don't talk right. You don't sound fancy. Aren't you a little embarrassed of yourself? And Paul says we and the rest of the apostles have already embraced the fact that we are going to be fools in this world because we have chosen the word of the cross to be our only message. And that will never be anything but foolishness in the world. But it is so nice that you Corinthians are just so very wise. I'm just glad that, you know, you're so smart while we apostles are just busy proclaiming foolishness over here, the only foolishness that can save people. Ouch. He then goes on to say, we are weak, but you are strong. This is the second spoonful of vinegar to help the medicine go down. The apostles' weakness was another point of their critique. You just don't come across like you're in charge, like you know what you're doing, like you're strong. Nobody cares about your presence in the room. And Paul says it's that very weakness that demonstrates a reliance upon God that differentiates the apostles and the ministers of the gospel from the motivational speakers of this world. Our ministries must be marked by grace and humility and constant pointing away from self to the glory of God. But... Good job, Corinthians. Your worldly biceps are just huge. You keep taking those rhetorical steroids, and you're going to be turning the heads of everybody who hates Christ any day now. Ouch again. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. The triplet concludes with this statement. The apostles have embraced the dishonor of Christ. And the Corinthians keep parading around like they're distinguished and important. They are not content without honor 
but the apostles have chosen instead that they will not be content without Christ. That's the crescendo of Paul's dad voice. And here he lays down his sarcasm, he lays down his irony, and he'll close out with just a few verses of heartfelt testimony. And so the watch out waltz is over, and it was hard to hear, I'm sure, for the Corinthians, and maybe a little bit hard to hear for us as well, but it is needful. Pride is this deadly. Its ability to invert our thinking is so powerful and so harmful that we sometimes need to be almost smacked in the face with it. And so before we get to our final three verses, a couple quick lessons. The first is this. Wrong views of self and wrong views of God always come together. Wrong views of self and wrong views of God always come together. It's interesting if you read the introduction to John Calvin's uh, systematic theology, uh, the Institutes. He says, like, I'm not actually sure where to begin when it comes to true knowledge. Is, does it begin with knowledge of God or does it begin with knowledge of self? Because you can't know God without knowing yourself and you can't know yourself without knowing God. Like those things are linked together. The creator-creature divide is so central to reality that that kind of comes as a unit. And so if we are becoming inflated with pride, not only do we have a wrong view of self, it invariably reflects the fact that we have a wrong view of God somewhere. And if we have bad theology, if we have a wrong view of God somewhere, it invariably will manifest in a wrong view of self somewhere. And so we must grow in both if we are to grow in either. And secondly, Christian humility is primarily self-effacing, not self-defacing. What Paul is calling the Corinthians here is not jump on the, just talk about how terrible you are bandwagon. Right? He's not saying, hey, Corinthians, I mean, come on, really, we're just, we're just miserable wretches, we're all garbage, we're all trash. He's saying, we're just, stop focusing on yourselves. Choose Christ. Make him the center of your life. And if you do that, the world's going to see you as weak and the world's going to see you as foolish and, and the world's not going to want to give you any honors or accolades. And that's fine. Let them have all of that self-centered nonsense. Give us Christ. So, yes, we're all wretches. We just kind of got to deal with it, right? But the focus of Christian humility is not the constant degradation of self. It is the constant glorification of Christ. Paul has one final category for us to confront this morning. Not only does pride get us backwards on where we are in the present purposes and plan of God, not only does it get us upside down on where we are at in our present condition before God, but it also spins us around on the right present strategy for confronting suffering in this world. And so look at, with me at verses 11 through 13. Pride inverts our present strategy. Paul writes this, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. A favorite Hebrew communication technique we've talked about before is the chiasm. It's a way of forming an idea funnel. You take a, a text or a thought and at the very beginning you say something and at the very end you say the same thing. Then you come in one layer and you introduce a new thought and then you repeat it right near the end. And then you have the center, the middle, 
where you put what you want to be the focus and the main point of what you're trying to say. And Paul has a pretty little chiasm here for us in verses 11 to 13. So let's break it down and work our way to the heart. The first layer is the timing. The timing. You'll notice the repeated use of the word present in our outline this morning because Paul keeps trying to pull the Corinthians back into now. He's like, you keep living like you're in heaven. You're not, right? You need to live in the present. You need to understand what God's doing as his purpose for you, as your condition before him, as the way in which you are to live a strategic Christian life before him now. So let me talk to you a little bit about the present. Let me show you what being an apostle looks like today. And so he begins the verse, verse 11 by saying, to this present hour, and at the end of verse 13, even until now, he's like, this is what it means to be an apostle right now. That's the first layer, the timing. Move in one layer, the trials. The trials. He says, you want to know what it looks like to be an apostle? Lounging around, tons of spiritual gifts. Everybody thinks you're awesome. We are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated. We're homeless. We toil working with our own hands. Drop down to the end of... Our passage there, verse 13, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Those two words refer to the end of like a long day working in the workshop, the garbage that you sweep out to be thrown away in the dustbin, or they didn't have showers. So they would take pot shards after a while, after you know, they would oil themselves in the morning, they would scrape off the scum and then like, ew, that was scum. And he says, that's what we are to the world. We're detestable. We're the stuff that's useless and you just want to get rid of it. That's what it's like to be an apostle. What do you think it's going to be like for anybody else? And then he gets to the heart right in the middle. What I'll call the triumph. In contrast to the Corinthians' assumptions, it is not through worldly wisdom, through worldly strength and worldly honor that we triumph at the present time. We are not following our Savior's rule and reign over all things right now. That's part of the story, but it's not this part of the story. It's not the present part of the story. How do we triumph now? How are we to live now? Not by following Christ's example of glory, but by following Christ's example of suffering by taking up our cross daily and by responding to a broken world as Jesus would have us respond. How is that exactly? Well, look right there at the heart of our little chiasm. Verse 12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we conciliate. Don't expect honor. Expect to be reviled. The proud respond by demanding their rights and fighting back against the insults, returning shame for shame. But what do the apostles model for us as the appropriate response? To bless instead. Don't expect comfort and riches. Expect to be persecuted. The proud respond with anger and panic and desperation to get away from the challenge. But what is the example we are left with? Endure. Don't expect people to speak the truth about you. Expect to be slandered. That's our, our enemy's favorite tactic. Lie. The proud 
want to destroy whoever would dare to impugn their honor. But our last example from the apostles is this. Instead of pursuing destruction, pursue peace. Reconciliation means to make friendship and peace again with somebody where that relationship was broken. Conciliation is to pursue peace and friendship where it has never existed before. That's what humility looks like in action. And that's what pride will get in the way of. And that's how we triumph now as a spectacle before the world of what the gospel looks like in the age of suffering before the age of glory. A couple lessons as we close. And they're very simple from this passage. Who do we need to bless? Who do we need to bless? Who in our life do we consider our enemy, the insulter, the one that we justify being angry at because they've chosen to be our enemy And who do we need to go to God and say, God, would you give me a heart of forgiveness so that I may bless even my enemies? What do we need to endure? What circumstances in our life right now are causing us panic and distress that we want to escape from, that we want to rage against? I can't, I won't. It can't possibly be God's will where we need to say in the providence of God, he's put me here. And as long as he keeps me here, I need to rest in his providence and endure by his grace. And where do we need conciliation or reconciliation? Where is there lies and slanders and heartache that have kept a relationship from ever starting or broken a relationship that existed where we can be those who pursue reconciliation, conciliation, for the glory of God. Let's be a humble church, willing to accept our present purposes, our present condition, the present strategy as God has laid them all out for us. This was the way Christ walked when he was among us, and this is the way of Christ for us who are called by his name as well. What a thought to keep in mind as we approach Easter and consider the sufferings of our Savior. And in case you're wondering if we are faithful in this present part of the story, it will be worth it. As the music team comes up, I close by reading Romans 8, 16 to 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him now so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, may that be our conviction as a church, so that we may honor our king. Amen.